0: Hello and welcome to Fidelity Connects, a Fidelity Investments Canada podcast, connecting you to the world of investing and helping you stay ahead. On today's podcast, we're featuring Portfolio Manager Don Newman. For Canadian investors, Don manages Fidelity Dividend Plus Fund, as well as underlying or sub-portfolio manager on several other funds, including Fidelity Dividend Fund. Don speaks with host Glenn Davidson, VP Regional Sales in Ontario, in today's show that was recorded on stage during a recent event for Advisors held on October 26th in Toronto. Don shares how dividend investing can work in a rising rate environment, especially coming from a downside protection-focused manager. Additionally, he'll discuss how his dividend funds could fit into an overall portfolio. Don also shares how he got his start at Fidelity in 2003, and how the team has grown leaps and bounds from the initial Team Canada analysts based in Boston. In terms of the portfolios, we'll also hear Don's perspectives on this market cycle and this year's investment environment compared to prior years. Today's podcast was recorded on October 26th, 2022. The views and opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect those of Fidelity Investments Canada ULC or its affiliates. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be construed as investment, tax or legal advice. It is not an offer to sell or buy, or an endorsement, recommendation, or sponsorship of any entity or security cited. Read a fund's prospectus before investing. Funds are not guaranteed. Their values change frequently, and past performance may not be repeated. Fees, expenses, and commissions are all associated with fund investments. Don Newman's
1: here, Dividend Equities, and as Dave said, Don, like the other PMs that we spoke to today, started as an analyst. And I'd actually like to pick up on that theme if I could and go All back right, in let's time go to it. Because I think it is important that we're reminded of the process and the experience that you've garnered. And so you started with us in two thousand three, before that was Goldman Sachs. Yep. And I don't know the answer to this question, but why'd you leave Goldman Sachs and come to Fidelity? Huh, uh, good
2: question. Um, don't say
1: you were fired because that
2: no be right. no I okay. wasn't fired I, I did work till two o'clock in the morning a lot of time and I decided at some point I had like a life so that was part of it um, actually you know what the biggest reason I left Goldman was I wanted to sort of be, have the ability to sort of put my money where my mouth was uh, and to actually sort of uh, do uh, do the investing and I was on the sell side before so I wrote a lot of research and had a bunch of ideas and all this and uh, I decided that uh, it would be a great opportunity and one uh, our director of research knew the director of research over at Fidelity and they were looking for someone in Team Canada. I was actually one of the only Canadians um, working in the uh, global research department at Goldman at the time, so I figured I had a pretty good uh, shot at it. And uh, Fidelity at the time, we had something called a super blue list. And uh, it was like the top five companies that Goldman Sachs needed to deal with. And Fidelity was one of those five companies. So you were always, you know, Fidelity always got one of the first calls from uh, Goldman Sachs. People I had dealt with at Fidelity were always surprisingly young and surprisingly smart. And uh, on the analyst side, uh, not as surprisingly smart, but just really smart. And so I wanted to work with the best. And um, from my experience at Goldman, that was, that was Fidelity. And uh, so I wanted to, wanted to make the move, and I was fortunate enough to get a job.
1: Very good. And originally in, from Canada, and yep. you went to high school in North Toronto at yep. Lawrence Park Collegiate. Yep. Yeah, and I yeah. don't remember where you went after that, but you did smart yep. things, which is good. And then you ended up working <laughs> with Goldman in New York. Yep. And then Fidelity's Canadian research team and PM team was based in Boston. So you yep. just moved north a little bit. Yeah. And then the team was moved to Toronto, and I don't remember the year that that happened, but now it's huge. It's yeah, a we, we went story.
2: from I don't know, I think Dan I think Dan was here earlier, but I mean, we went through a period where it was just in a cube row. We had it was like we were all in our 20s and it was Dan Dupont, Hugo Lavallee, myself, Darren Leckerkerker, I think he was here earlier, yeah. Joe, yeah. Uh, Andrew Marchese, who's now our CEO, sat sat like right behind me. So, there was like all these these guys who have basically grown up in the system and it's surprisingly we're all in our 40s now, but we've all been here for 20 years. And started as analysts. So it's the, the continuity. Um, you think about like the amount of turnover in most places. At what's now, I guess, the senior level of our firm, we have, we, like, we've almost had no turnover. And I've been working with the same people for going on, I hate to say it now, it's like 20 years.
1: And you develop a real level of trust for one another and debate and discussion and Yeah, and it's, it's
2: really interesting having sort of basically grown up with the people you now that sort of run all the money at the firm. We're all friends. We know each other's families. We all sort of, we all have very, and one thing that's really nice about Fidelity is they let in our CEO at the time, this is pre, predates Andrew Marchese, who's guy named Bob Haber, and he sort of let everyone sort of, you develop your own style. Um, you basically sort of ate what you killed. If you did well, you're promoted. If you didn't do well, you're going to go away because everything was really it's meritocracy and there wasn't uh, you were tracked by computer systems all over the place and he had designed all the computer systems so at the end of the year you knew like to a decimal point what your bonus was because every way you know it's like am I adding value to the funds Am I is my equal weight quant score, my cap weight quant score, like all this, like the computers track everything, you, every rating, every decision you ever made and you knew if you were good or not. But what's really cool is all the analysts, like Dan's a deep value guy, Darren's sort of GARP, Hugo's contrarian, I've even talked about my style in a bit, but it's sort of like GARP, but reasonable price focused. All of us have developed completely different styles, working in the same environment, run funds that sort of cater to those styles, but we all share ideas and we're like, it's it, it's a really collaborative environment, which I think you probably don't get at a lot of other places.
1: And I think that's come out in the presentations today and other presentations that our audience has been at before. Talk about the uh, sectors that you covered as an analyst.
2: Yeah, so I've been through, uh, at Goldman, I did metals and mining, I switched over and did insurance, I did diversified financials, I did asset managers, I did consumer staples, and I did, uh, it was an uh, oil and gas.
1: So you were at Goldman doing metals and mining, and you interviewed at Fidelity saying, I'm pretty good at metals and mining, and they gave yep. you insurance.
2: Yeah, they figured out, I'd gone in, and I remember one of the PMs at the time, when a part of the interview question was, come in and fix my portfolio, yeah. and it was showed me all his metals and mining stocks, and that was my interview your question. Go in and tell me where I need to switch things around. But once you've done something, the whole idea is we want you to be uh, a diversified portfolio manager. Okay, you've done this. Great. You know what you're talking about? Go on to the next thing. Then go on to the next thing and prove you can do it. If you can do that and you've made money there, go on to the next thing. And eventually, you've seen enough of the market. You've trained up. No one's throwing you in as a PM without having done most of the Canadian markets or, or market in general. So you need to know all the valuation metrics. You know what drives all the different sectors. What, what's important? You don't ever want to be sitting there going as a PM going, hey, this news come out. I thought it was good, but the stock's down 10%. Not understand why. You should be able to go through things pretty quickly on all the sectors and know what the metrics are, know what matters, and have that skill set before you hit PM. So what we do is we try to rotate through people. So we have this rotation program, which I think is pretty unique. And we take relatively young people that are all really smart. We hire some incredibly smart people these days. But we make sure that they know what they're doing. So you've seen Connor and Dave and all those, some of our sort of newer PMs. They've been at it for a decade and they've made money all the way, all the way through and they've sort of made it through the um, gauntlet or whatever you want to call it mm-hmm. and they've made it to PM, but they're ready to do it because we've seen the numbers over the years and we like the numbers say they can do this.
1: And your forte is dividend equities. So dividend, let's talk about go. how have dividend equities done in this volatile environment?
2: Yeah. So what, I, what I'd say is the, the investment environment is really different now than it has been for, say, like the last five years. So give you just a little bit of a background. So if you think about what the investment environment was from like 2016, 17 on to 2020, it was very much a uh, – wait, there's no inflation – the fed can't get inflation to two percent the discount rate on the market is effectively stuck at zero and we're pumping in stimulus the the entire time so it's a really really good environment to own growth equities because you don't really when the discount rate on the market is zero you don't really care too much what you pay for it so your pe can be 40 if the company's still growing like crazy You pay 50 times earnings. You pay 60 times earnings because there's nothing else in the market that's actually growing. So what ends up happening is you get a bifurcation. And for a number of years, I'd say dividend investing. And guys like me were sort of out of favor. Now, come into a different environment when the Fed and the Bank of Canada and all the central banks around the world had flooded the market with with liquidity. Interest rates were low, but inflation starts to tick up. And it takes up more. And the Fed becomes late. And they took too long to get in, interest rates up. And you get a bit of an inflationary environment. And one of the sort of the tenants I was working with or sort of the, the pillars I've been working with for the um, at least uh, for the last probably most of 12 months was, listen, the discount rate on the market needs to go up. Interest rate needs go up. And when you have that sort of environment and you have inflation sitting at 8%, suddenly dividend equities become really, really important to your portfolio. So it's a combination of yield. And yield plus growth, which is more attractive than a bond. And you see bonds have been terrible this year. And it's been, and it works a lot better than say a long duration asset. And you think about long bonds, but you also compare that to like, there's a reason the NASDAQ is losing to the S&P, which is losing to the Dow. The NASDAQ is effectively a long duration asset where you pay a lot of money for what you get out, you know, 10, 15 years from now. But when the discount, but you pay, if you're paying 40 times earnings, but the discount rate goes up, the multiples get compressed more on long duration assets. So that's why long bonds have suffered. The NASDAQ has suffered, you know, the S&P has suffered because it has more tech weighting than, you know, the, the TSX for dividend managers that probably have more conservative companies that have higher payouts where you have a yield. Say if you had a four, four and a half percent yield or something. That really insulates you to it rises in interest rates. And on top of that, you actually got you're not only getting the 4% yield, you're getting that growth, and maybe it's a 7% or 8% growth in earnings. So you get a 4% yield, but you actually that yield is actually growing unlike a bond. And in an environment like this, where you have possibly structurally higher or at least a little bit higher inflation going forward, the idea of getting yield plus growth is for the, probably for the, you know, the first time in sort of a long time makes a lot of sense in the environment you're in, um, to have as part of your portfolio.
1: Dividend Fund and Dividend Plus. Yep. Now let's talk about those, compare okay. and contrast those. They, two
2: funds. they are different and designed to be different. So historically, if you went back to like 2005, Dividend Plus uh, is actually our old income trust fund. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's designed to be a little more infrastructure y, um, have uh, more sort of you know pipelines, utilities, real estate, telecom, that sort of infrastructure type feel to it. Dividend tends to look a little bit more like you see in I want to say a traditional dividend fund but sort of done fidelity way and um, you know we can talk about t- why it's different and how I sort of mm-hmm. do things that are a little bit different uh, but they are separate and distinct and actually in dividends you get a you get about a 20% sleeve of, of dividend uh, of dividend plus as part of the uh, the overall dividend fund
1: and talk about inf- actually I just I have to go back in time you mentioned the income trust fund I remember we brought that out yep a predecessor of yours. Yep. And I think it was about a year and a half later, the government changed the rules on it. It just seemed like the right thing at the right time. And then it was squashed.
2: Yeah. So I, th- I wasn't running it during the time. That would have not been a fun day. Um, <laughs> but, uh, uh, you know, listen. The government had to do it. At least everyone was going to convert to an income trust, and it was going to drain the drain the coffers of the uh, of the Canadian governments. They 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 had it wasn't a fun day, but they they sort of had to make the move because they are, I think it was uh, you know like Bell and uh, Telus were thinking about merging and converting, and right. it was just it, it was becoming a, a total mess.
1: Crazy times.
2: So, given uh, let's go into your thoughts on
1: inflation yep. and how that affects what you're doing on a dividend standpoint.
2: Okay. So in inflation, to a certain extent, uh, obviously has been, has, been, has been an issue. So one of the things I've tried to do with the fund and one of the nice things that you know, dividend funds do is they are good inflation protection, right? So I mentioned the yield plus growth. I've had, I sort of had, and we, we talked about these sort of three things I was trying to do this year, and most of them have worked out well, and I had to switch one. The first sort of theory I had in the funds for the year, and I've been talking about for the last year, is yields are probably going up inflation's probably going going up there's an inflation so you probably want some inflation and protection in your fund mm-hmm. um you do that through dividends in a in a couple ways um a dividend fund one you get companies that can push price um, and so, if inflation is six or seven percent, but you can take you can take that price and push it along to the consumer, uh, and you can keep your margins, you know, flat or better, uh, you actually do well. So, company good quality companies that can actually push along that inflation, wonderful inflation protection to have as part of a dividend fund, and they pay you uh, out in the in the form of distributions or dividends. Two was just having some commodities because we know that in generally infl- uh, commodities have been j- uh, pretty good inflation hedges. I um, had a decent amount of. You you know, oil and gas certainly earlier in the year, everyone hated oil and gas. I thought it was probably a little overdone to the downside. That's been a really good, that's been a really good hedge um, for for the for the portfolio, and just. Uh, in general, I guess my thoughts on inflation, it will come down. Mm -hmm. And so we're at eight now. At at some point, it will start ticking down. The question for the market is just the glide path of that inflation coming down. So if the Bank of Canada's got it right, and today, you know, they've stopped short at 375, and they're like, we think inflation's 3% by the end of next year. If that's right, that's really good. The market will really, really like that. And I think as you start coming down, we're going to be sort of in this battle between Really good inflation coming down. And, you know, unfortunately, interest rate hike's taking a little bit of a toll on the economy. But the market usually... It sort of bottoms out when interest rates the, it start to start peaking out. And if you look back to the 70s, actually the one year, when the one year peaked out, earnings kept going down, but the market actually started working. So if inflation starts coming down, the market's, the market's going to like that. The question then becomes, you can get I th- the glide path probably from eight to seven to six to five and maybe to four is you know pretty foreseeable. The question is how then sticky is things? But I think the market will rally if you start making that move because the market it likes to extrapolate forward. The question just becomes, do you get to four and things are a little more sticky? Um, there's been a whole bunch of, you know, like wage hikes. So I was talking to a rail guy the other day and like the rail union got a five year and 5% a year increase. So like, can you get back down to two? That's a little bit, a little bit of uh, sort of a question. If we get stuck at four or five, the market won't like that, but it will certainly rally if we start making our way down, um, down there. What I would tell you is just even if, you know, we're down at three or we're at four or five, the, the same idea is the idea of yield plus growth. Because if we get stuck at four, you're probably, your clients are probably not going to be super happy with that you know, getting eroded, having their money eroded there. So having a 4% yield that sort of offset that inflation and then have that growing every year um, makes a heck of a lot of sense.
1: I don't want to lose sight of the fact that you're a bottom-up portfolio manager. You look at companies. You visit companies. They come and see you and do all that stuff. But what did you think of the Bank of Canada's move today?
2: I thought – I really like the fact that they went hard early um, and like just recognized, listen, we screwed up. Um, we're behind. Um we did 100. we did 75. Um the market was kind of split. I think the consensus was 75. They said we'll go 50. I don't know if it changes their endpoint. They they mm-hmm. they still said we think we end at 450, um, but they're given a little breather. This is gonna mm-hmm. cool the economy down, like and it 's not great particular it 's not incredible for earnings, but the fact is it may not be awful for the market if they can cool things down, the market the number one thing the market cares about right now is inflation and If inflation starts to come down uh, and they can ease off on rate hikes, the market's going to going to really like it so um, we 'll take a wait and see the thing that 's at least encouraging is they 've got rates up the fed'll do it in the next you know month or so. And they're getting closer to the terminal rate. Like it was at the start of the year when you're sitting at like, you know, 25 or 50 bips and you know they have to go 300 or 400 bips. And increase the rate. That's a long way to go, and that's like sitting there going, "This is just not going to be good for the stock market." Um, you're now at three seventy-five. The Fed's going to get themselves up to you know to close to four pretty soon here, and you're probably you're going from three seventy-five to probably four fifty, and the Fed's probably doing somewhere around you know around that level, maybe a little a little bit higher, but you're getting closer to the terminal rate mm-hmm. in which the case the market can sort of say, "Okay, we've got there." Um, we can handle it. We see what earnings are, and then we can sort of we can start to gi- digest. Instead of going, when's the next seventy-five bit hike? When's the next fifty bit hike? So, I'm encouraged that we're getting closer to there, and we know that you know when the feds when the feds should start peaking out, and when the Bank of Canada kind of peaks out, uh, that's generally healthy for asset prices. Based on all that, yep. talk about positioning now. Positioning now. Okay, so my view hasn 't changed on what i 'm doing but I think it it sort of moved a little bit so I mentioned the um, have a little bit of inflation protection in your in your portfolio because that's it is still an issue i 've really tried to mitigate the downside and for those of you who have seen me before um, you know one of the things I try to um, or has been sort of a historical hallmark of the funds I run uh, is they 're generally a little bit less volatile than the overall the overall market so um, i 've been fortunate enough that they outperform the market, but they do it with a lot less volatility. And the idea behind that was if you can do that with less volatility, it allows advisors to sleep at night. It allows clients to sleep at night. And it you end up having a lot less major mistakes. And I'd put that major mistakes being freaking out at the bottom and selling and then having the market rally 20% on you or deciding, hey, this is amazing. I got to go all in. You go all in at the top and uh, you end up lo- losing them a lot of money. So what I'm sort of is the like, don't perform over time. Do it with a little bit of volatility and just try to get a, a, a reasonable yield. So one of the th- my sort of second sort of theory for the year was you wanted to keep the P.E. low on your portfolio. Uh, and that way, rises in interest rates, the lower the P.E. is, the, the rise in interest rates, it's sort of like a short duration stock portfolio. The lower the P.E. is, the less impact uh, rates have on your portfolio. That's worked really well. The, the funds have you know are just, I think, after today, uh, the dividend fund will be down a percent. And a half or two percent for the year, and that's that. That's okay, given it got thirty percent last year. The third, the third thing has actually switched. I was thinking about sort of if you see my talk at the start of the year, I would have said, oh, "Listen, I think reopening and that sort of thing probably works." That's kind of switched over to opportunistic, mm-hmm. and this is where sort of the Fidelity Research System um, comes in. Um, I'd sort of tilt the portfolio more defensive to the start of the year, uh, and that's worked. That's worked really well so far. I think at this point, um, if you look at where the market is, you know, like the Nasdaq was down 30, the S&P got down 25. We know in historically in bear markets, um, you, you're just, the drawdowns are about 30 in the low 30s. So it's like kind of you know, everyone's waiting for the recession, you know, stuff. The fact is you're kind of 75% there to like a major, Bear market bottom anyway. Um, So, and there are a lot of stocks at this point, um, thankfully not my fund, but there are a lot of stocks that are down 20, 30, 40%. Um, So instead of going and like buying a lot of defense right now, I'm actually starting to look at like, okay, where's my upside for the next two years? I don't know. Some of these stocks, may, I mean, if they're down 40%, I don't know. Maybe they can go down another 10. But if I can get 100% you know, upside in the next three years, let's go fishing for that now because the damage has already been done across the markets. I, like I've avoided most of it in my funds. Um, so let's look at some really good companies that happen to be down 20 30 40%. Start putting them in the portfolio. So when the market does turn, I'm not sitting on a like, hey, why is Don still playing defense when things are things are moving? And so I want to be kind of picking things with with upside that have already seen everyone like other people have gotten killed. They can sell their their stocks and hopefully you know like I can buy them. Uh, and it may not be in the next three months, it may not be in the six months, but two, three years from now, um, hopefully some of these stocks are you know plus 50, plus 60, plus 70%. Are you kind of indicating a bit of a obviously it's not a V bottom, but more of a
1: U? Again, not an economist and all yeah, that sort of stuff. No, but when you talk about, like, stocks have had
2: the th- stuffing knocked out of Yeah. So, so. Th- this is where I just go back to, listen, I, I'm picking stocks and I'm not going to get too macro in this. Uh, I see a stock that I think is great that I've always wanted to own. It's down 50%. I'm not sure. Who knows? I'm not going to pick the exact bottom, yeah. but I know what the earnings power is over time. Uh, and I can talk to my analyst and we do the math and it's like, listen, I was like i don't know if you're going to make money in the next six months but in the next two or three years you're going to you probably make a lot of money on this so i want to be going now into things where i think i make a lot of money uh and a lot of the damage has already already been done um so that the portfolio can kind of you know i did you know got really good upside in 2021 um but holding in pretty well now maybe Maybe, who knows, maybe there's a little bit left, but I've avoided a lot of the downside. So go and pick the stocks that are already down. You're pretty uh, excited about the demise of all these companies. That's Well, good. yeah. Like some, I I want to buy good companies yeah. when everyone else hates them. And uh, so, it, and, and the fact is, it's not just like the really crappy companies that have gotten beaten down. There's some of them that are down like 70%, <laughs> but there are some really high quality companies that are down 20%, 30, 40%. Mm-hmm. Um, that, and I've got a list and kind of my numbers for, and I want Want to own all of them, and uh, some of them are started to hit my numbers. And you get to buy these companies once every, you know, half decade that's, or something like true. that. Um, it doesn't come around that often. So when they do, they come on sale, and they come on sale very rarely. Um, I generally like higher quality companies, so um, it's you know, it's time to sharpen the pencil and start uh, buying away on a few of these things. They're not big physicians yet, but um, they, they 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 hopefully will get there.
1: That's very encouraging. Um, dividend plus. Differs quite a bit from dividend
2: uh, because of REITs. Yeah. So talk about what you see in that space. So real estate, unfortunately, had. If you think about 2021, um, it was a perfect scenario for uh, for REITs. Um, so REITs are driven by there's supply and demand, and basically cost of debt and credit spreads. So. Uh, and just think about overall economy. This year has been tough because, uh, and I will have to admit, if you talked to me at the start of the year, I didn't think we were going to be able to get rates much above three because I thought that was going to be, strangely enough, that was going to put pressure on the market and that was not going to be good mm. for things. Mm. Um, so I got that part of it right. I didn't think you'd get rates to four or north of four. I brought my REIT portfolio sort of down in size, probably could have been a little bit faster on that part, but have generally held in Okay. But that's a, I'm waiting for yields to to hopefully peak out. Um, but some of the REITs, you know, let's listen. You can't have companies that were trading at three and a half cap rate, and just think about it, the discount rate that's applied to a REIT. It's sort of a fancy REIT term. But and then their cost of debt is five and a half. Because you go on, but you can 't buy something at three and a half go in and pay the three and a half cap rate and finance it with five and a half so what 's happened the whole REIT world has had to adjust up with interest rates so that the companies kind of re- reflect at least their cost of financing so you 've had a lot of companies that have gone from you know three four percent cap rates and they 're now at five and a half or six percent cap rates that starts to look a little more sort of attractive. And the fundamentals are not fantastic. The market is slowing, but valuation eventually becomes sort of interesting. There's a lot of companies that are trading way, way below uh, replacement cost. There's not a chance you could possibly build any of these things um, for what what they're trading at. The yields are now getting pretty good. You just got to be selective and make sure that you're sort of buying in sectors where the supply and demand is at least okay because it's not quite as good as it was last year.
1: Here's a question from the audience. How do you balance the need for yield and the sustainability of yield?
2: Okay, Um, for me, sustainability of the yield is a big deal. So, I do not want companies that are, there's two things, over levered and have high payout ratios is a bad combination. So, this is why we have analysts um, that, you know, have a balance sheet and an income statement and a cash flow statement for every company they cover, sort of on a worldwide basis. I can go in and talk to the analysts. I can go in and, you know, boot up their models. So, you basically want to find companies that have payout ratios that that are reasonable. And what a payout ratio just means is they the amount of earnings you're paying out as dividends. So for companies that you say, oh, this is wonderful, it pays a 6% yield. In some cases, the company's really in trouble if it pays in a 6% yield. It's using all of its earnings and, all of its, and its cash flow. And it may not have the cash flow to... Pay off, the, pay off the, well, hopefully it has it to pay off the debt, but then it just, it has no money left to actually grow the business. So you end up with like a 6% yield or a 5% yield and zero or negative growth. So what I'm looking for is companies that have a reasonable payout ratio. So I may not have the dividend fund with the absolute highest yield, uh, and that's by design because I want the companies to actually be able to grow on top. So what I'd love to see a company that has a 35 or 4% yield or 4.5% yield in today's Environment, some of the yields have been forced higher by rates. Um, but they can still grow at 8% a year. And so if you take that 4.5 and next year it's almost five, then it's five and a half. And at six on your cost base, you just keep compounding and you find out like ten years later, you'll look at this thing, and you know, your yield has grown by by 50%, and you're like, geez, on my cost base, I'm getting like I've got a seven and a half or eight percent yield on what I paid on this. This is fantastic. So I'm like, I think of myself more as a total return investor than just a dividend manager. So you get... The dividend plus yield. So if I 4% yield, 8% growth, and if I think the PE multiple can kind of hold, I think of that as a 12% return. I think that beats the market over a long period of time. And that's the way, and you've got a 4% that you know is pretty stable there. And if I can, do, and then it's our analyst job, make sure you get me the eight, do your earnings model well. Uh, and then let's figure out, does the PE multiple make sense? And that's why I mentioned it's been, it's been good to sort of be a GARP manager, growth at a reasonable price. Sorry, throwing mm-hmm. out the acronyms, but with a, fo- I've got more of the sort of the focus on the reasonable price than the growth. And the combination, hopefully, if you put together, makes a, a good total return.
1: We've got to wrap soon because you've got to go and we've all got to go. Let's talk about where dividend plus fits in a portfolio sure. and then where dividend fits in a portfolio.
2: The one thing I would say with dividend, you actually get this is my default answer. With dividends, you actually get a little bit of dividend plus. As well. So you're kind of buying both funds where there's dividend plus and dividend, dividend fund. Okay. There's about 20% of the portfolio. Um, that's, that's dividend. So that's always my sort of cop out answer. If you buy dividend, you kind of get, a, you got uh, 75% of, uh, uh, sort of a dividend sleeve 20, and, and I think there's 20% of div plus in it. Div plus, uh, is, it's a little more interest rate sensitive. So I would say to people, when you think like rates are peaking out, um, that fund will end up doing fairly well because or if rates start getting cut uh, because there's a lot of real estate. I've got some utilities. Um, there's some pipelines. Uh, a little more. It's got an infra, like infrastructure type stuff. Um, so it tends to be a little. The earnings probably a little less volatile, but has a little more sensitivity to, uh, to interest rates. And dividend tends to be a little more of sort of a diversified portfolio instead of just like an infrastructure portfolio great um and i just say just for for anyone the serve is is my pitch i think there was a number of years you could have gone through and you know like a dividend portfolio did not necessarily have to be part of your, you know, sort of broad diversified portfolio. I think in the environment we're in, um, it really does make sense to have at least some part of your portfolio that has the characteristic of like income plus growth. And in my opinion, that probably lends itself to having as part of your diversified portfolio, a good dividend product.
1: Thanks for your enthusiasm and you sound very 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 constructive on the market which is which is a nice message because we've all been beaten down so yeah. it's nice to know that there's some opportunity. Th-
2: there's opportunity out. out there. That doesn't mean the market goes up tomorrow, but it does mean that I'm starting to see things that I haven't seen for a long time and that as a stock picker that does get me excited.
1: Hopefully the market
0: goes up the next day.
1: Anyway,
2: Don <laughs> Newman everybody.
0: Thanks for listening to the Fidelity Connects podcast. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe to Fidelity Connects on your podcast platform of choice. And if you like what you're hearing, leave a review or a five-star rating. Fidelity mutual funds and ETFs are available by working with a financial advisor or through an online brokerage account. Visit fidelity.ca slash how to buy for more information. And while visiting fidelity.ca, you can also find information on future live webcasts. And don't forget to follow Fidelity Canada on Twitter and LinkedIn. Thanks again. See you next time.